Welcome to the ninth episode of the Anxious Poets podcast. Thanks for all the feedback that you uh, gave about the last one with Helen Mort. Uh, thanks to her for coming. I think um, it was a good conversation about creativity and poetry and anxiety. I'm Adrian Scott. I am an anxious poet and the anxious poetry I'd like to look at today is from A Night Sea Journey, the last collection that I wrote. And it's about a man who did an extraordinary thing 800 years ago that during the course of this podcast we'll look at uh, through one of the poems. The man is Francis of Assisi, born in 1182. And I'm sure you're wondering what on earth has someone born all that time ago got to do with poetry about anxiety and and the transformatory journey that you might go through uh, when you have issues <clears throat> like anxiety or mental health issues in general. Well, uh, as a way into to looking at someone who for me has been, I, th- I think when, when you suffer from something like anxiety, you're always looking for companions. You're looking for people who um, can say to you, oh yeah, I felt like that, and and this is how, how I lived through it. This is how I found a, a life in it, maybe. Um, this is how I've accommodated and accepted where I am. Um, a bit like the conversation with Helen last time. You know, how do you find an accommodation with with all the sides of your personality? That, um, that makes for a, a good life. And for me, from being pretty young, Francis of Assisi has been that kind of companion. And you'd be forgiven if you're not Catholic or Christian um, for having very little knowledge of him. You may well have seen him in garden centres. Um, <laughs> he is... Uh, was reputed to have had a real connection with the animal world and what seeped into popular culture is this image of the what people call the birdbath Franciscanism. Um, Francis as some kind of birdbath holding onto a rabbit and a few other animals um, and you'll find him, you'll certainly find him in American garden centres. And, um, and that's about it. That's what's seeped through. Unless you're Italian, where uh, in Italy, Francis is the patron saint of Italy. And um, you have to learn, apparently, I'm told, when you're small, you have to learn his uh, poem (coughs) called The Canticle of the Creatures. Um, that he wrote towards the end of his life when his sight was failing, for reasons that we'll go into. Um, It's a hymn, if you like, to the natural world and the way he encountered it. And and Italian children, I'm told, uh, have to learn that because it's the first poem in Italian. Poetry before then was written in Latin, but Francis composed this poem in his own native language. And... um, and therefore it's the first poem in Italian. So why is he a, such a good companion in terms of 
of anxiety and mental health. Well, you, you probably wouldn't find that in the average um, Catholic book, um, what they call hagiography, the, uh, the the study of holy people. Um, but there is one book um, written by a Latin American liberation theologian called Leonardo Boff, very unpopular with Pope John Paul II, um, all the liberation theologians, because they made this deep connection between um, the theology of, of Christ, um, looking at who Jesus was, and the plight of the poor and the downtrodden and the environment in Latin America. And, and and found that, that the the teachings and the actions of Jesus seem to have a lot more to say about power and its misuse and about the place of the downtrodden and most ignored, most oppressed, and and where God um resided in all of that uh those issues. And they felt that God resided among the least, the weak, the poor. Got them into a lot of trouble, as you can imagine. <clears throat> That's what I would call a radical point of view. This is what Leonardo Boff says. Integration, integration is the result of many comings and goings, ups and downs, acceptances and denials, until it crystallises as a powerful centre that attracts and harmonises all. When the saint considers herself or himself to be a vile sinner, unworthy of salvation or of God, he or she speaks the truth, because they are speaking of the shadow aspects, those sinister ones that are their demons that reign within us. In the plan for holiness... These are controlled but not dead. They are always integrated so that their strength may not destroy us, but rather help us to arrive at the promised land of our own being. The promised land of our own being. This quote is at the beginning of the cycle of poems in A Night Sea Journey, my book, um, on St. Francis, the Francis Cycle. Some of that language is peculiarly Catholic. Uh, if you read any hagiography, um, <clears throat> especially from uh, 60, 70, 100 years ago, you hear those phrases like a vile sinner. God forgive me, a miserable sinner. Um, and what Boff is doing, which I think is, 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 is what we all need to do with with this kind of language and this kind of inheritance that we have from the great spiritual traditions is understand it in a modern way without being completely reductionist about it. And, and so he's saying that integration is the, uh, the goal of human liberation. That's a very young looking at it and, and one that I would really echo. That, that there are all these parts of us that Jung begins to identify in his studies, uh, parts of our psychic makeup, parts of our human inheritance, that, that some force within us, um, the self, as, as Jung would call it, 
is, is seeking to bring into integration. So there's a deep acceptance of all the, what he calls the many comings and goings, the ups and downs, acceptances and denials. And that becomes a powerful center that begins to harmonize all these things rather than denying them. And in the plan for holiness or in the plan for becoming a fully integrated human being, they're controlled. The darker parts of us, the shadow aspects, those sinister sides of us, our, our, our mental health issues, our anxieties, our depressions, our manias, are, are, are maybe even the psychotic side of us. Um, these are, are controlled or, or integrated in some way. They're not denied. And their strength then may not destroy us, but help us to arrive at the promised land of our own being. Wow. Well, for me, Francis has been that kind of companion. And um, I, in, in doing this podcast, I, I want to release him, I suppose, from that birdbath image. Um, and, and also to alert those of you who've never really come across him to what an extraordinary human being he was. And, and in certainly one aspect... Um, of what he did 800 years ago this year, someone who really has something to offer to us. Now, he began his life in 1182 uh, as um, the son of a wealthy man, a nouveau riche wealthy man. Pietro Bernardone and Pica, his mother, were part of the new up-and-coming merchant class of Francis's time. Assisi is in Umbria, in northern Italy, and it's it sits um, on on Mount Sebastio and looks down over the plains of Umbria. It's a very beautiful place, built with pink stone. Um, one of the many hill towns or cities, city-states, that that was uh, part of the geography of that region at that time and Francis's father had was a, a self-made man he was a cloth merchant and they were a kind of up-and-coming uh, class of people before that you could really divide uh, Assisi and, and and that area's um, uh, society into two basic parties factions or or, or um, groups the minore which was most people and they were mainly landless serfs in other words people who had a very uh, tenuous hold on existence which was bolstered by them being in um, fealty to a feudal lord uh, and in return for the lord's support and offer of, of, of land and accommodation, they would be willing to fight for that lord in whatever causes he decided were valid. They were the minore and and the poor. They were they were poor. And the vast majority of people f were in that group. And then there were the majore, which up until that time had been predominantly aristocrats um, <clears throat> feudal lords, people who inherited wealth, and um, 
and and basically controlled the way everything worked alongside the church, which was a feudal power all of its own. Innocent III, who was the Pope at the time, was the uh, pinnacle of papal earthly power. He had armies, he launched crusades, he was a powerful force in the world of, of, of Francis and the people who lived then. And so this new class Pietro Bernardone grew, was growing into were the beginnings of capitalism, I suppose. They, they were um, doing well for themselves in selling and buying of commodities. And um, it, it appears from the records of Assisi that Pietro Bernardone was not only doing well for himself in the selling and buying of cloth, but he was beginning to buy up land from um, bankrupt aristocrats. So Francis, whose real name was John, that Francis is a nickname, his mother was French-speaking, so Frenchy is the kind of nickname, Francesco. Um, he had everything that that uh, wealthy family had to offer him. And he grew up a rich young man. And he loved the troubadour tradition of the time and would... Uh, sing the great songs of of, of um, passion and chivalry, uh, and and the 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 great knightly um, images that were set in front of young men, and he bought into that hook line and sinker. Loved to have parties, and would carouse through Assisi with his young companions, and having a pretty good time. Um, until a war was um, brewing and began between Assisi and Perugia, the next hill city state. Uh, you could actually see Perugia on the, the foothills of, of some other hills not far from Assisi. And he went out to battle. Um, his father had obviously equipped him with everything he needed, and unfortunately, Assisi lost that battle and Francis was captured and put in a dungeon for a year in Perugia. And the only way he was released was that his father paid the ransom to get him back. And he came back. And this is where uh, I'm really interested in looking at Francis as a human being rather than some kind of um, template for... Catholic hagiography because when he comes back from this a lot of the, the books about him from a religious point of view say this was the beginning of his conversion experience to, to a deeper understanding of Christianity and although that is true I think he was also suffering from PTSD he'd been deeply traumatised by what had happened to him like any young soldier in a battle especially a battle that's gone badly, it's a brutal introduction to, to what, what warfare is really about. And then to be put in a dungeon as a young man for a year um, is torture. And so when he returns, he is understandably in a mess. And all of that joie de vivre that he had seems to have been knocked out of him and he becomes reclusive 
and he becomes uh, quiet and he wanders around the city and then he wanders out of the city, which was to a certain extent in his time a pretty thing to do because safety was guaranteed by the walls of the city. Outside the city were all kinds of people. Um, sick people were banished outside the city, lepers. Um, they lived in colonies outside of the cities and uh, thieves and, 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 and criminals lived outside of the cities and would rob people on the roads. Um, so, you know, he was taking somewhat of a risk, but I think when you're traumatised and troubled, those things don't impinge on you so much. I, you know, I think a lot of people who have suffered from anxiety or depression, you do find yourself wandering um, away from the normal things that, that, that make up your life. Francis, in this wandering, encounters a ruined chapel some outlier of, 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 of the church um, in the countryside that's, that's, that's fallen into ruin. And he spends time in this place. It comforts him. It makes him feel m more okay about what's happened to him. And um, in this church is a, is a big Byzantine crucifix. Byzantine uh, art is, is the art of iconography like the Russian or Greek icons. So this is a very stylized picture of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is looking very serene, and yet there's blood coming from his wounds. And Francis found this a soothing place to be. And I'm going to read the first poem in the cycle uh, about that time and that place and that church. It's called The Terrible Invitation. And... All the poems in this collection are uh, prefaced with a quote from a biography by um, called Donald Spotto, who is a biographer rather than a hagiographer, um, and his other one of his other biographies is of Marilyn Monroe. So he bring he brings the biographer's uh, viewpoint to Francis. He's not an apologist for Francis, he's just describing what he can piece together from history of his life. And he says this about San Damiano, the ruined church. The place seemed on the verge of collapse from old age and neglect. The walls were cracked, the low vault was crumbling, the beams were rotting. Wild grass sprouted along a narrow window, and the crescent-shaped apse, once bright blue with painted stars, was faded and peeling. No one had worshipped at San Damiano for years. The Terrible Invitation Living can become a crumbled-down church in whose ruins you accept your smithereened self and see it mirrored in a crucifix hanging by a thread. This is what happened to the man called Francis, a nickname from his French mother. His real name was John, after the gaunt locust-eater of Judea. He went off to fight Perugia, next of many walled cities, a young man, dreaming of nightly standing, taken, dungeoned for a year, needing a father's ransom. Returning, sick, recovering far from his old life, beyond Assisi's walls where lepers and thieves roved, finding a ruined chapel conversing with a crucifix.
The artist Giotto captures this on basilica walls in the great mausoleum made for the saint after his death to claim his approval for their Christendom. But if you let your gaze penetrate, it is so much more stark than the old pious stories. It's what happens when you face your own dismantling and say yes to it. Francis was addressed by this pinioned figure, inviting him to relinquish all his facades, not a lord demanding fealty, but courteously from below a wounded lover. He set about rebuilding the ruined chapel brick by painful brick. He said it was his calling, what the voice asked of him, unaware of just what was being rebuilt. This is how radical this man was. His literalism kept him close to instinct soil and the pain that comes from being at the end of yourself. Yet his story says there is a great lover at that frayed tether end, calling you, renovating you, as you feel the slow dawn of visceral kindness. If you allow yourself to face the terrible invitation in the crumbled-down church of your own brokenness, it won't leave you unwounded, but it will become a life. It really struck me when I was writing this poem in the teeth of my own breakdown. We have a little chapel at the in the basement of our house. Um, it was a wine cellar. Um, in fact, it's part of a two-up, two-down workman's cottage, so originally it was just the coal cellar. But the people who had the house before us used it as a wine cellar because it's got an earthen floor and it's cool. Um, we turned it into a little vaulted chapel and we have a copy of that crucifix that, that uh, is referred to in the poem in the chapel. Francis apparently, when he was in church reflecting on everything, heard the voice of, of the figure on the crucifix say to him, Go, Francis, rebuild my church, which, as you see, is falling into ruin. Which, as you see, is falling into ruin. And Francis took that completely literally um, and went off to local quarries, found stone wherever he could borrow or, or, or get hold of stone and started to rebuild the little chapel. Uh, it's called the Chapel of St Mary of the Angels, Santa Maria degli Angeli. And um, you can still see it in Assisi now, just outside of Assisi. Um, it's unfortunately surrounded by a baroque monstrosity of a basilica but you, when you go into the big church you can see the little church inside and you can see the brickwork that he put together which is obviously not the work of a stonemason but hasn't done bad because it's still there for me the church is a metaphor the little chapel of his of his self of his own self of of the life that he was aiming for that had completely disintegrated and fallen apart and he was at the end as it says in here the frayed tether end of his life trying to work out what to do next or even worse than that i think just just stuck in in what probably felt like a never-ending 
series of days of, of, of PTSD, of anxiety and, and worry and fear. And the search for a balm for that, for something to soothe it. And he accepts in that church this state that he is in. If you allow yourself to face the terrible invitation in the crumbled down church of your own brokenness, it won't leave you unwounded, and that's definitely true of Francis, but it will become a life. And in his acceptance of that situation, he starts to rebuild the church brick by painful brick. And it wasn't just that. He was unaware of just what was being rebuilt. Somehow his, uh, his selfhood was being rebuilt. He started to see himself in a different way. And what's profound about him is that in that seeing of himself in a different way, he actually changes class. He changes his position in life, his, his uh, standpoint in the world. And he moves from being a majore to a minore. He begins to go to church, uh, to, to um, listen to the words of the scripture. And he hears them in his own way. That's what's powerful about him. He doesn't hear some interpretation of them coming to him from the outside. He says in one of his one of his writings, no one taught me this. I found this for myself. So he's he's not obeying some external doctrine. He says he says, I found it. And so he listens to Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, Go sell all you have to the rich young man who encountered Jesus, a man like the young Francis. Jesus says, Go sell everything you have. And give it to the poor and then come follow me. And Francis hears that and thinks that's it. I'm rebuilding this little chapel. I don't need any of the things I used to have. And, and if this is what this, uh, as I say, um, this courteous Lord, not demanding fealty but coming to Francis courteously from below like a wounded lover. If this is what he's asking then I'm going to do it. And he does. Unfortunately, one of the things he does is he um, he sells from some of his father's cloth, uh, which his father doesn't take too kindly to. Um, he gives it to uh, the money to the little priest that's meant to look after this chapel. Uh, the priest quite wisely doesn't use it, and when this all comes to a denouement, Francis's father grabs Francis and the money and drags him before the mayor of Assisi uh, to get some legal redress against his son. And Francis appeals, says, this is I'm doing what the Gospels tell me. So the mayor, let off the hook, sends him to the bishop, Bishop Guido, um, the bishop of Assisi, who has to adjudicate father and son. Very difficult thing to do. And um, Francis says, OK, OK, you can have the money back and you can have all my clothes and he's stripped naked in the towns in the in the, the the piazza in front of the cathedral and he hands back he says here you are father uh, uh, till now i called you my father now i call god my father uh, and and gives his father back all his clothes it's pretty pretty fierce emotional territory this is and um and 
And there's a rift that happens that day between his father and himself that is never fixed. Um, his father cannot understand what's going on with this son of his. Uh, and Francis somehow is, is never able to articulate the inner workings of his own soul enough for his father to understand this. One wonders where Pika, his mother, was in all this. Um, and, and in the next poem I'm going to read, it's about this relationship, Turning the Corner, it's called. Um, because after this, Francis, when he's wandering the streets of Assisi, begging for food, because um, he chooses the life of a mendicant, of a beggar, uh, and he wears sacking clothes. So when he strips naked, there's a lovely f painting by Giotto who documents all of these occurrences, and they're in the Basilica of St. Francis. Um, there's this great picture of, of Francis stripped naked and the bishop's putting his cope, his robes around him to cover his indignity. It's a very human depiction of, of what was probably a deeply awkward and uncomfortable moment for everyone involved, apart from Francis, who seems to be blissfully unaware at the time of, of the trauma, um, which is, I think, w when you suffer from, from trauma and difficulty, sometimes you're unaware of your effect on other people. But, um, you know, the bishop, the bishop is obviously embarrassed and... And but hears this young man's cry and wants to respond to it, and his father's furious with him, and that fury continues. It just continues, um, for the re from from what we can work out for the rest of Francis's life, uh, and the rest of his father's life. And I think it's a really sad thing. And Donald Spotto, at the head of the poem called "Turning the Corner" that I wrote about this, says one can neither deny nor replace a human relationship however inadequate or painful, by asserting that a relationship with God will fill its function or substitute for it. And I think, you know, when I first came across St Francis when I was young, uh, and, and in the first flushes of Catholicism, I thought, you know, oh, well, God is now his father, how wonderful is that? But you can see from his life that that was deeply painful for him, and it's that pain, and it's that dislocation that that makes him try and deal with it that's 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 admirable to me so one of the things he does is when he's wandering around the streets of assisi and he meets his father who continually curses him he takes a beggar with him and he asks the beggar to bless him when the father curses him as some antidote to this uh, there's a there's a kind of wonderful creativity in that um in the balancing of the curse and the blessing. So this is turning the corner. Turning the corner was always a risk in the twisting alleys and passageways of Assisi's hill-mounting topography. How many times had he been confronted by the grim visage of Bernardoni, his erstwhile and simmering father? Ever since that day in the cathedral piazza, dragged before episcopal judgment, where he made impetuous nudity his own, presenting like a festive present a bundle of the clothes his family had wrapped him in, in one act, callously unparenting himself. A wrenching dislocation of the order that had pertained up until that moment, a rent that was torn in both their hearts. This was a wound that would, would not heal, 
a scabbed lesion of crossed purposes infecting all their future encounters. For the ongoing confrontations with his father, Francis found a beggarman to walk with a mendicant paternoster to combat the curses. But I don't believe this was ever substitute for the fatherly beatitude he ached for, and in this he has bequeathed us a dark gift. To turn the corner of our own winding streets, to find what lurks there, and go beggarless toward the disconcerting paternal maternal shadows to gingerly embrace our stumbling parents finding a new kindness for their failures and take the hand of our own pained yet hopeful child to take the hand of our own pained yet hopeful child i think we're offered something by francis here to do with the way we're parented we all inherit <clears throat> all kinds of things from our from our parents. My father fought through the Second World War. He was born in 1910, um, was sunk on an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean and was traumatised by what happened to him. Um, my mum lived through the Blitz in London. She was 20 years younger than him, born in 1930. And um, she lived through all of that trauma and they brought that to their adult lives to their parenting and um, so my dad died when I was 11 he smoked 60 a day um, he drank sometimes quite heavily and um, you know lo I lost him when I was 11 and that was to do with the trauma that he had experienced um, my mum had a nervous breakdown when I was 15 and again that was the trauma she experienced of losing her husband when she was young, not grieving. They put her on tranquilizers, to which suppressed the grief, and then it all came out in a big breakdown of uh, depression. And you know that shaped me on, in all kinds of ways. Um, I wasn't cursed by my father, but I was cursed by the loss of my father. So this, this, the end of this poem, I take as an encouragement to gingerly embrace our stumbling parents, finding a new kindness for their failures. Sometimes we can get very angry with our parents, and often with damn good reason, and being a parent now of three young people, uh, well, not so young, my eldest is 28, um, you know, you, you realise, gosh, what, what have I visited upon them? And this is a, a an encouragement and an, an invitation to embrace those disconcerting paternal and maternal shadows um, in our own winding the winding streets of our own psyche, and find some acceptance and accommodation. And and Francis manages to do this in in many ways. Uh, I have a poem in here called Two Beggars and a Wolf." which you can read, and, and that describes the encounter of Francis with uh, a wolf in a town called Gubbio, another walled city that was being terrorised by this wolf. And, and the legend is that he uh, encounters this wolf in, in, the, in the city. Everyone else has fled from it, and he negotiates a peace between the wolf and the town. 
the wolf is old and unable to hunt and is terrorising the town and they agree to feed it and that that rapprochement uh, is a powerful um, legend in Francis's life it, it has some great symbolic power and if you read the poem you'll see that um, that, that, that Francis embraced uh, all the shadows cast in that square come out of hiding into that wolf and he consumed them all with his voracious appetite for darkness befriending all that we disown leaving only the hungry animal and you know there's so many hungry animals inside us that we need to negotiate a peace with and Francis embodies that and you find little statues all over a CC of Francis and a wolf I think they're, they're, they're beautiful um, Donald Spotto says he frees a rabbit captured in a trap he returns to the water some struggling fish trapped in nets he asks that honey be supplied for bees in wintertime he tames a killer wolf turning the beast into a town pet for the people of Gubbio he negotiates a peace with the natural world at a time before we'd really really started to exploit it um, he is the patron saint of ecology um, the the uh, the latest Pope Francis, named after this Francis, has written a, a papal encyclical called Laudato Si, um, uh, advocating a whole new approach to the environment. Um, one of the times when I felt proud to be a Catholic, um, Laudato Si is the first words of Francis's poem that Italian children learn. Praise to you, Laudato Si, for all the creatures. But the thing that I wanted to talk about now is is what happened 800 years ago this year. An extraordinary thing. So Francis has encouraged huge amounts of people to follow him. Um, this way of life that he starts in the, the crumbled down church becomes a life, and a life that other people want to lead as well, of simplicity, um, of living close to nature, of contemplation. So he spends a lot of time in contemplation. In other words, what, what we would call today mindfulness. He goes up into the woods above Assisi to old cells, prison cells, and, and makes hermitages. And when he goes into towns, when he goes to towns, he, he speaks to the people um, of peace and good. That was his blessing, Pax et Bonum. Peace and good. Um, he allowed people to look at what would make an accommodation in their lives and all the warring factions both within themselves and around themselves and to look at what was good, not what was bad. Richard Rohr, who talks a lot about St Francis, a Franciscan from New Mexico, says this, that Francis stepped to the side and did it differently. He didn't, he didn't challenge head-on all the injustices of his day. He just stepped to the side and offered a different way of looking at things and doing things. And one of these different ways was about war and violence, which he had experienced and was deeply traumatised by and, and, and preached peace and goodness. And it can be argued, historians have argued, that Francis began to break down the feudal system because he managed to get this great Pope Innocent III to approve his way of life. Uh, 
his his religious community, as it was called, the Order of Friars Minor, the brothers of the and sisters of the lower class, and for the people who didn't want to go the whole hog, and be celibate and and join the the what was called the first and second orders of men and women. You could be a third order Franciscan. In other words, follow a lot of the ways that Francis advocated, but stay in your ordinary life. You were allowed to do this, and that released you from from carrying arms for a feudal lord. So many people joined this part of Francis's community that lords were having trouble finding soldiers. So... That's what they mean by stepping to the side and doing it differently, offering something so good and powerful that people no longer want to do the darker, difficult stuff. And maybe empowered by this, but from his absolute deep sense of um, wanting to embrace, as he does with the wolf, and as he does, which we'll see later on with uh, the lepers of Assisi, he wants to embrace the other. And he hears about the Crusades, and he's horrified by this idea of making war on another group, and he wants to go and see what's happening. Um, these Crusades were were launched by people like Pope Innocent III and preached around Europe as... Um, as a way of getting into heaven. If you sign up for the Crusades, all your sins will be forgiven. Um, and if you get killed, then you will go straight to heaven. Sound familiar? Um, so people went off on these Crusades. And Francis goes to Egypt in um, 800 years ago, 1219. Uh, he, he goes off walks because he won't ride a donkey or anything like that one of his commitments to being poor was was to walk reminds me of Greta Thunberg sailing to America he walks to Egypt from Italy and when he gets there he sees the uh, crusader army laying siege to a, a town in Egypt a city in Egypt where the sultan al-Malik al-Kamil is um, is ensconced the Muslim the Moor Sultan with the Muslim army defending the Holy Land which they were in control of which the Crusaders were trying to wrench from their hands with this bloody war um, the uh, the Vatican declared the crossbow a weapon of mass destruction that should never be used in Christian wars but could be used against the Muslims. This is the world that Francis is And he walks into this situation, and his decision is he's going to cross no man's land, and he wants to talk to the sultan. And the cardinal, Pelagio, who is out there supervising all of this, is horrified, and this is what Donald Spotto says, the cardinal relented and allowed Francis an illuminatus to proceed on what he considered a suicide mission to the camp of Sultan al-Malik al-Kamil. Cardinal Pelagio expected to receive their heads on poles or plates before nightfall, because this is what happened when you crossed the lines. This is what happens, as described in my poem, it's called The Poverty of Greatness. 
Francis goes off across the lines with this little brother, Illuminatus, and I've uh, written the poem from Illuminatus's point of view. There was always the sun in their eyes and dust devils kicked up by discalced feet. The whole walk had been towards east in, and in this last morning, sun scalded and empty. Illuminatus was his name, but today he felt their cast shadows long and early were an ominous harbinger of a darkness that his charge was almost yearning for. There are always front lines in wars like this, he knew that, and between them, no man's land, and to cross it was almost an act of self-martyrdom, and only his Arabic between them and the axe. Now they were in the core of the Moors. Sultan al-Malik al-Kamil had them now. He took them for either emissaries of war or Sophia, Islamic for holy beggarmen. His man's eyes were even worse, puffy and crusty, seeing little of their plight, having seen too much of the depravity stalking the crusader camps like a djinn. He translated his master's pache at Bonham, and Francis embraced with tears the assalamu alaikum of the great enemy, whose welcome was hospitality itself. When they returned to uncaring Assisi like guests at a wedding no one wants, Illuminatus absorbed the loss his master accepted, outcast from the brotherhood he grew by heart. The Muslims had stayed in Allah's camp, his master had failed, no martyrdom, no dramatic conversions, just a long walk, a Camino in reverse towards ignominy. What did he, Illuminatus, the unenlightened, when compared with the great man, know? But secretly, he thought the greatness had gone out of Fra Francesco, and that that was not bad. And that was not bad. So Francis crosses the lines. They're, they're swept up by the, by the Muslim army and taken because they think they're holy men, luckily, to the sultan. And apparently Francis spends three weeks with the sultan. Um, and it, this is a, amazingly current, even on Look North, our local news programme. Uh, a couple of Franciscans that live in Bradford, uh, 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 which has a big Muslim community, went to a mosque and, and told this story, and one of the, the imam helped them go round schools telling the story about uh, a meeting between Christians and Muslims, which was not about warfare or about blame or about projection of darkness and it was beautiful to see it on look, on look north these children these muslim children talking about saint francis and the christian children talking about the sultan and um, so francis i think wanted to try and convert the sultan certainly that's the story that's told in one of giotto's paintings in the basilica there's a picture of the sultan and francis and francis is pointing to a fire that's burning in the sultan's court and saying i'll jump into it and your holy men can jump in and we'll see who comes out alive whose is the right god the sultan seems to be a man who is bigger than all that and 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 convinces francis i think that they are worshiping the same god and francis is deeply impressed by the muslims and and by their piety and and faith the sultan gives francis a horn 
which is used to do the um, the call to prayer, which happens seven times a day. Um, Allah Wakbad that you hear from the minarets. And that, that horn is still in uh, a museum in Assisi. Francis is de- taken with Sultan al-Malik al-Kamil. And the Sultan is taken with Francis. Uh, and, and they have an enlightened and deep conversation about their shared faith. Uh, the Sultan allows Francis to visit all the holy places in the Holy Land and ultimately hands them over in the truce that is negotiated to the care of Francis's community. And a lot of them are still in the care of Francis's community. Um, so this was a huge step forward. It's like, uh, you know, going to negotiate with the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Um, and, and, and he, but he comes back and he feels that he's failed. Somehow he feels that he hasn't, uh, A, negotiated some conversion of the Sultan or some peace between the warring factions. Um, I think he underestimated the power of what he'd done. But he comes back, walks all the way back, I say a Camino in reverse, towards ignominy. Because when he gets back to Assisi, the community that he founded has kind of drifted away from his ideals they've started building houses and reading you know getting books and becoming clericalized and 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 institutionalized and he is horrified he starts pulling slates off buildings he's he's so radical and uh, he's just he's, he's just not happy and they don't really take any notice of him like i say he they they are like um guests at a wedding no one wants um, and an Illuminatus, I say in the poem, secretly thought that the greatness had gone out of Fra Francesco and that that was not bad. I think this describes a moment in a lot of our lives when the the fire of what we think we are and what we think we're about, the midlife crisis really overwhelms us and the fire goes out and we're lost. And we don't know who we are anymore. And we don't know what we're meant to be doing. And and the things, the, all the hopes that we had have come to, maybe not failure, but have not come to the, the fulfilment we wanted or expected or hoped. Um, it happens to most people in midlife. And it's a, it's a hugely important crisis. According to Jung, it is the defining crisis. Um, for some people it is a is, like me was a sudden onset of something for other people it's a gradual awareness of 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 the fading of their faculties and and the difficulties that their lives have have brought to them and and um as he does with most things embraces this he tries to see in the life of jesus um an accompanying echo and and decides that what he needs to do is go and make a Lent a 40 day prayer and fasting uh, sojourn away from Assisi away from all of this this idea of retreat and pilgrimage 
you know, the, the Camino, the walk across Spain to Santiago has become more and more popular with people who go nowhere near churches. It's a human desire. Uh, if you read David White's collection about Camino, um, uh, about pilgrimage, it's, it's, it's a human archetypal desire, as is retreat, as is mindfulness. Francis goes to a place called Laverne. Uh, it's it's a good journey from Assisi, uh, and it's a, a a mountain, and it had been given to him by a rich woman. She said he could use it whenever he wanted. So off he goes with another brother. Uh, there's always some brother in tail with Francis, and he makes this um, this Lent, this forty day prayer and fasting. And if you go to Laverna, there's a beautiful church up there with lovely artwork and it's surrounded by trees and then you can look down over the valley. It's, it's really beautiful. And um, it's there that Francis is meant to have received a vision of a crucified seraph. A seraph was a six-winged angel and these angels were angels of love. They were the fiery, passionate love of God embodied in an angelic form. And, and Francis has a vision of a crucified seraph. When he comes back from Laverna, he is reputed to have the wounds of Jesus, what they come to call the stigmata. Um, I, I don't know. Who knows? But he certainly reflected in his body the woundedness that he felt and the love that he felt for the the community he'd founded, for the world around him, for the poor, for the broken, uh, for his own broken self, and for Christ who he saw as the embodiment of God's uh, deep care for, th for those people and for the environment. Um, he always saw God as coming humbly from below. His, his view was that the birth of Jesus was the, the event where life where salvation happened if you like that that god becoming human was was an act of incredible generous self-emptying love um and and that absolutely took him took his breath away uh that that there's no there's no forcing or dominance in in the divine so this poem's called laverna and uh, here's the quote from Donald Spotto. In the end, as institutions will do, the church, with the eager collaboration of the new group of intellectuals within the fraternity of St Francis, did away with everything that identified the friars with the poor. Did away with everything that identified the friars with the poor. That ripped Francis apart. So he sought out Laverna. What do you do when it all falls apart? Everything you worked so hard to build comes crashing down in a tumult of distress. When every solution you devise wreaks more heartache than good, more blisters than rumours of recuperation. He had found a way to fly with the swallows, to rush down from the hill like a breeze through the town down to the Riverborne Chapel to take the evangelical counsels of the carry no sack or script, shake the dust loose foot friend of the outcast seriously. 
But as when any finds freedom from the end of the tethers we tie ourselves to, and goes herring off, ears pricked, hutchless, they all ran after the lithe, long loper, with their coops clattering behind them, wanting to build a new city of cages around him. So he outran them, seeking out Laverna, gift-given mountain forty fierce fasting days, lent unleavened by false comfort or self-medication. No fixing here, just the heart in fractured freefall, just the wrestling with the unforgiving bastard angel, not letting it go until it becomes a seraph. A six-winged apparition of savage love, of what happens to the thinnest-skinned, most willing to hazard, they get crucified. At the end of his Lent, spent and rent, all ragged and with no answers, no sense of what the point of it all was, in that wreckage his body caught on. It replicated the wounds of his Lord and made visible his utter lostness. He came back to the old windowsill at San Damiano and blindly penned from memory his song to the earth. He became a walking wound, a siren to his brothers, that love is the only reason to carry on and face the wreckage, that love, love is the only reason to carry on and face the wreckage. This is the second huge crisis in Francis's life. It echoes those crises in all our lives when uh, either at one moment or, or some growing crescendo of a crisis or over a long period, you come to that point where you think, where am I? Who am I? What am I doing here? How have I ended up here? What's been the point of everything I've tried to do? Um, and for someone like Jung, if you don't hit those crises, if you don't have those experiences, you're actually, he would probably say, not really in touch with the deeper parts of the psyche, with the deeper parts of yourself. And as that quote from Leonardo Boff at the very beginning of this podcast says, you know, it's those crises, those integrating experiences where you, ex you feel the fractured self and you feel the penumbra of darkness around you from all the failed expeditions, the, 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 the dashed hopes, the painful eclipses of what you thought was a sunrise. There are the times where you encounter the depths of who you are. And you can actually, as he did, welling up inside yourself a deeper, more profound, more resilient, more real sense of who you are. He discovered that in that stripping moment, in that, that painful Lent that he spent um on that hillside and and that appreciation of the depths of who he was fitted him to encounter uh the world that he returned to when he went back to Assisi and when we do that it fits us to encounter the world around ourselves and the world that he now encountered 
uh, partly because he'd become so ill. So he caught some kind of fever uh, and eye disease in Egypt, which which ruined his eyesight. And um, he he had fasted and sought to be um, hard on his body, trying to make his body shape up somehow to the visions of of life that he had. Um, he apologises to his body in his later life. He called it brother ass and he said he'd treated it badly, which he had. Um, and he, he, he becomes a simpler soul, acquainted with the places that filled him with joy in his earlier time before all these people started following him. Um, a woman called Claire had followed him who founded a a contemplative community around San Damiano, the little chapel. And he would visit her and he'd sit at a windowsill and look out over the plains of Umbria with his with his um, ruined eyesight. And he composed the canticle to the creatures which you should read. And I've written my own version, my own response to it. Uh, one of the poems called A Canticle to Creatureliness. Um, but it's the most profound piece of writing because... He sees the natural world as his family. Brother Sun and Sister Moon. Uh, brother Air, Sister Wind. Brother Fire, Water. Brother Bodily Ill Illness and Sister Death. And I think uh, that is a... It, it sounds, you know, easy to say. But he really did experience those things as his family. Therefore... When they were damaged, it was like damaging his intimate family. Even up until quite recently, Franciscan communities weren't allowed to cut down trees without the permission of the head of the whole order. Um, this is a vision that is suddenly becoming incredibly important in our time. Um, and he is, he is a, a, a bright light in that vision. Um, so towards the end of his life, he begins to reflect on who, he's, who he is, what, what's been important to him. And he writes this thing called The Last Testament, which is he knows is dying and it's his farewell to, to the world and to the community that he founded uh, and to the people that will come after him. And um, this poem, which I'll finish with, is, is called Last Testament. Um, and... Rather than the quote from Donald Spotto, there's a quote actually from Francis's Last Testament in the poem. So uh, what I hope, given that October, which is when I'm recording this, is the Feast of St Francis is the 4th of October, is that you can see why, for me, he's been such a great friend uh, and brother to me in, in, in going through anxiety because he didn't hide from any of that. He embraced it and accepted it and found creative ways of accommodating those difficulties, accommodating his darknesses, so that he became what, what the quote from Boff at the beginning said, he became this integrated human being um, who still illuminates the world that we live in now profoundly about the environment about our desire to consume everything, uh, about 
our relationship with with the Muslim world. He's so profoundly pertinent to today. So this is the last poem uh, that I'll read. And uh, thanks for listening. And thanks for being involved with this podcast, the Anxious Poets podcast. Perhaps Francis was the anxious saint. Last Testament. What vital, seminal story would you leave behind as your last testament? What would be so tectonic in your life that the shape that the shift shaped a disorder? What vital seminal story would you leave behind as your last testament? What would be so tectonic in your life that the shift shaped a discernible future? The saint, as they name him, Francis of Assisi, recounts this in his last will and testament. Even the sight of lepers was like acid to me, but the Lord himself led me among them, and I worked mercy with them and helped them. When I left, all that had been so acidic to me was turned into sweetness in my soul and body. Even the sight of lepers was like acid to me, he says, but the Lord himself led me among them, and I worked mercy with them and helped them. When I left, all that had been so acidic to me was turned into sweetness in my soul and body. Quarry these words, excavate past the deposits of the hagiography, the accretions of Catholic rust, and see a man, nouveau riche, terrified of possible contamination, trapped in the keep of his own ego. Walk the rough road behind him, he is on the Samaritan's path. Hear the leper's bell, tolling his corruption, peeling jeopardy. The isolation of putrefying flesh avoided at all middle-class costs. Watch Francis descend his mount and his hereditary grandiosity. To stagger towards his own darkness, the embodiment of decay and loss, standing mendicant before him, the kiss and exchange of bitter for sweet. Watch Francis descend his mount and his hereditary grandiosity to stagger towards his own darkness, the embodiment of decay and loss standing mendicant before him, the kiss and exchange of bitter for sweet. Francis, in early in his life, uh, after the San Damiano time, encounters a leper before he's actually embraced his poverty um, and he gets off his horse and and because his instinct is to run away, he gets off his horse and he walks towards the leper and he kisses him and he says he experienced deep sweetness. Watch Francis descend his mount and his hereditary grandiosity to stagger towards his own darkness, the embodiment of decay and loss, standing mendicant before him, the kiss and exchange of bitter for sweet. This encounter was seminal for the man, it impregnated him, liberated him, and as he was dying, he had to dictate it, laid on the soil, naked and unroofed. Francis, when he died, asked to be stripped naked and laid on the floor. So I say in the poem, this encounter was seminal for the man. It impregnated him, liberated him, and as he was dying, he had to dictate it, laid on the soil, naked and unroofed. What is acidic in you that might turn sweet? 
yearning for delivery, to take first breath. Go into hard labour to birth it, it is there in the womb of you, aching to emerge. What is acidic in you that might turn sweet, yearning for delivery, to take first breath? Go into hard labour to birth it, it is there in the womb of you, aching, aching to emerge. Thank you.